The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello. 1,600 years ago, a student traveled from his home in northern Africa to Rome, where his academic talent and intellectual curiosity brought him immediate success. At the same time, his yearning for a higher morality, a spiritual orderliness, came into conflict with his zeal for life and his lust for women. As he looked for guidance in the texts and teachings of the most important philosophies and religions of his day, one belief system began to seem truer than all the others, the one practiced by his mother, a pious and devout Christian. His name was Augustine, or Augustine, and the story he'd later told of his life and his spiritual journey has a strong claim as the first introspective autobiography in the history of the world. Who was Augustine? What led him to produce one of the most influential books ever written? And what can we gain from his book, The Confessions, today? Augustine's Confessions, today on the History of Literature. Hello, I'm Jack Wilson. Welcome to the podcast. Well, it's a good one today. It's another religious book. You know, these are popular episodes. The New Testament, the Hebrew Bible, all the religious works we've looked at from India. They touch a chord. I can see it in the statistics. And that shouldn't be a surprise. Religion and religious thought is human. It's human to want answers to hard questions. It's human to wonder. It's human to struggle. That's what's so great about today's author, Augustine. Augustine is human. He's us. He's a struggler. I don't know that there's ever been a better struggler, or at least no one has captured the struggle better and gotten it down on paper. You feel his longing, his intellectual longing. These things matter to Augustine. They matter deeply. Questions like the nature of the universe, the nature of time, the nature of God. How does an omnipotent being permit evil? Does it come from the devil? How can God be omnipotent if there's a devil, if he has a rival? Augustine lived in a time when these questions were open and much discussed, with different answers and approaches swirling through the air, when many religions and philosophies and schools of thought competed for primacy. I'm a little ahead of myself. I wanted to, first of all, thank you all for the feedback. This is a journey. Well, I, did. I didn't know where it would take me when I started. I knew I needed to get on this train, and that was about it. It has been very gratifying to have you all on board, a growing number of passengers. And if you're inclined to help us out, we're not asking for much. Just subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or wherever. That helps. And while you're there, give us a good rating. Listeners are the fuel that keep us going. Thank you for your help. Okay, enough selling fish for now. Let's take a look at Augustine. Augustine. 
Hey, grown-ups, the Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, so let's start with some basic facts. Augustine wrote his autobiography, From Northern Africa, the Land of His Birth, at the age of 43. It is a great great autobiography, perhaps the greatest ever written. Every autobiographer, every memoirist is working in Augustine's shadow, in a sense. Remember what we heard from Professor Kyle Kiefer in our New Testament episode. He talked about biography and how the form has evolved. It doesn't make sense to view the Gospels, the four biographical sketches of Jesus, through a lens of today's biographies. Biography in the ancient world was a different form, less thorough and comprehensive and fact-oriented, more agenda-driven. The details you got weren't necessarily going for a total life. They were there to support a particular point, to support the author's view of the figure's importance. Augustine and autobiography is different. There is a direct connection between Augustine and today's autobiographers. I'll explain that more later. So, 43 years old, not old, not young either. What had he done? How had he spent those years? What is he going to tell us about? I'll try to sketch this out in broad strokes before diving into the text itself. Once we're in the text, it's hard to re-emerge, because the passages are so good, and the good passages come one after another so quickly. There are very few slow stretches in the Confessions. Augustine was a master of building tension and suspense, intellectual suspense. That's not an easy trick. He seems to have invented and perfected it. He was born in Africa, in what is now Tunisia. His mother, Monica, was Christian. This is very important to him and to the narrative, as we'll see. She was a saintly figure, but also she was not exactly demanding, She didn't push Augustine into Christianity. She stood by like a lighthouse, like a beacon, always there, always pulling him toward her with her light. Is that the right metaphor? A lighthouse? I'm not sure. I'm not sure I'm getting the point across. My point, I guess, is this. In the book, she is hopeful that he will be Christian. She doesn't require it or demand it of him, even when he's young, and would be at her mercy. Hmm. I just thought of something I hadn't thought of before. Is Monica allowing Augustine free will? Is that what she does? Permits him to choose, knowing that the choice will only be honest, will only be meaningful if it's his choice to make? 
If so, how very godlike of her. And I'm spelling God with a capital G. In any case, both Monica and Augustine's father want him to do well in school. They push him in his studies. He excels in rhetoric, in the art of arguing. He's good at it, and he takes a real interest in seeing how it works, how arguments are accomplished, watching those who are good at them. At the same time, something is always nagging at him, that it's hollow. It's all lies. He'll say that in the narrative. We were just lying. He carries this throughout his life, this tension. He's good at school, good at his lessons. He's a bright boy, although he's not fully in control. He's the kind of kid who asks a lot of questions, probably more than his teachers want him to ask or have time to answer. He's restless. He runs with a bad crowd. Puberty strikes him like lightning, galvanizing him, making him even more restless. He loves the pleasures of the flesh and drinks freely from the cup of sexual gratification. I'm... <laughs> I'm amused by my own impulse here to clean all this up. He's sowing his oats. He's gathering his rosebuds. He's hound-dogging it. Later, he complains, Why didn't anyone marry me off? That might have helped. I kind of doubt it. He was a sexual addict. Centuries before his time. Here's where I depart from Augustine. His famous prayer, his plea to God, which comes in the confessions, Lord, Give me chastity, but please, not yet. It's a great line, a famous line. It is echoed through the ages. It's like cogito ergo sum, or God is dead, or all the other lines that crystallize an author's works so perfectly. Lord, give me chastity, but please, not yet. What a fantastic line. When I first encountered it in my own youth, I realized that I was something of the anti-Augustine. Lord, please, enough with the chastity. That was me. Okay, I'm back to Augustine. He roamed through literature and philosophy, reading the Greeks and Romans who were available to him, and sampling other potential religions. Christianity was always there in the background, thanks to his mother. But he fell in with the Manichees for a time, a group of religious seekers following a mysterious but compelling figure, Manny. Manichaeum, sorry, Manichaeism was known and is known for its dualism. Everything is light and dark, good and evil, God and the devil. It's a way of making sense of the world. It's a way of answering those hard questions. Like, why is there evil? If God is good, why is there evil? But ultimately... For Augustine, it's not satisfying. He also considers astrology, Platonism, all these other philosophies. He goes to Italy, first to Rome, then to Milan, where he eventually meets Ambrose, who impresses him as much as anyone. Along the way, he makes friends, continues his lustful ways, but agonizingly so. He thrives in debate. He continues to rise the ladder of society and academic success thanks to his exceptional talent for scholarship and debating. He has a mistress and a son, and continues to seek, to ask, to pursue. He never stops. His intellectual curiosity and his honesty, and his consideration of arguments for their persuasive qualities and their weaknesses, all that is the engine that drives him. Finally, he comes to believe that God and Christianity are the truths that he needs to accept, and he seeks to understand them better. He rises through the church quickly and returns to northern Africa to devote his life to the church there. And then, 
At 43, he sits down with his pen to write the confessions. The confessions. What are they? What's the structure? What's their purpose? There are 13 books in all. That makes it sound longer than it is. Each book is fairly short. The whole thing is a few hundred pages. The first nine books tell the story of his life. The last four books are devoted to philosophical and religious and epistemological problems. There's a book on memory, for example, and one on the nature of time. Those books are often ignored, though they shouldn't be. They're just as good and just as important for understanding what Augustine is up to. But let's set them aside for now and talk about the heart of the Confessions, the nine books describing Augustine's personal story. Augustine is committed to telling his story fully. He starts with what he can remember and not remember about his infancy and runs all the way to the present day. But the book is addressed to God. There are times when it almost qualifies as a second-person narrative. You were there with me. You denied me the knowledge at this time. Sentences like that. I was wrong not to seek your guidance. That kind of thing frames a lot of the passages, and it frames the narrative itself. The book is clear in its intentions from the very first paragraph. The implorations to God, the role of God in the book, God's relationship to the book's purpose, none of this is hidden. And the book is full of biblical allusions. Phrase after phrase is footnoted carefully for the modern reader. Augustine writes in biblical phrases. Although it's fairly seamless, you could read the book without knowing any of the phrases. But they serve as a kind of parallel narrative. They unlock new doors. Frankly, I recognize this in in theory, but don't really undertake it myself. I get too enraptured in Augustine's story, the story that's on the page, the story and the meaning. It's me and Augustine, not me, Augustine, and the Bible. I don't need to mediate my experience or deepen it. I get enough just from him. In any case, all of the allusions, all of the anecdotes, all of the prose, all this is toward the goal of finding, achieving, and understanding God. God and his universe. God and his plan for humans. God and the role he plays in human life. The nature of God. The physicality of God. Celebrating God. Coming to grips with God. That's what the book is about. The prose matches it. It's as if someone wrote a biography of Bob Dylan or the Beatles or Martin Luther King Jr. The phrases are there. The phrase is so full of meaning and richness and mystery. You read them. You absorb them. You spend years dwelling on them. They form your mindset and exude from you. And then you write a biography of those people. Those examples are weak compared with the Bible and its impact on Augustine. You get the sense that Augustine was so immersed in the Bible and its teachings that he thought like this. He thought in Bible verses. They grounded him. And he did this not just because he was reading them all the time, but because he was engaged with them. He was examining them. He was trying to understand their meaning. He was probing them for truth. Once he had accepted their truth, their almighty truth, he was desperate to make sense of them, to test them, to argue and reason and explore. Remember how early the church was. This is 397 AD. On the other hand, that's not that early, several hundred years between Christ's life and Augustine's. America is only 250 years old or so. That's a lot of time for thinking and commentary and arguments and writings. Augustine absorbed it all. 
He was steeped in the Bible and Christian thought. Steeped is a good word to describe Augustine. The Bible was the tea, the plant, as old as the hills. Augustine, his lust for life, his insatiable wandering intellect, was boiling water. He poured one over the other. The confessions is the result. It's ours to drink. And even if we let it cool to room temperature, the boiling, the steeping is still there. The process is part of its history, something we imbibe with every sip. Okay, time to talk about my own point of view here. I know, I know, some of you might be disappointed that I'm not Catholic, or even particularly Christian. I might not be your ideal messenger for a podcast about Augustine and his confessions. My apologies for that. I do what I can. Believe me, if I could be someone other than Jack Wilson, I'd do it in a heartbeat. I'm no happier than you are about that. I'm just as disappointed. So, full disclosure, I have two main principles when it comes to religion. First, I am essentially an agnostic. I believe that I don't know the right answer. But my second principle, which is just as firmly held, is that I am always wrong about everything. Okay? I just am. I've proven that again and again in my life. Wrong. Dead wrong. So, I have to apply the second principle to the first. I'm agnostic, but I'm always wrong. Therefore, agnosticism is probably wrong. I'm mistaken in my agnosticism. Well, where does that take me? Uh, This is interesting. If agnosticism is erroneous, because it's what I believe and because I am always wrong, then one of two things must be true, at least with respect to Christianity. The God of Christianity exists, or he doesn't. One of those two things, because I am always wrong. And that's the bedrock here, the one unshakable belief that I have, which I have proven again and again to be correct. Empirically, I know I'm always wrong about things. So, agnosticism must be false, and one of those two things must be true. God exists, or he doesn't. But wait, that may be well and good. I got there by logic, but I'm always wrong. It doesn't matter how I get there. My end result is wrong. So it can't be that only one of two things must be true. That there's a choice. There must be no choice, because I'm always wrong. They must both be true. Ah, now we're getting somewhere. God exists, and he doesn't. Both are true. They must be true, because I'm always wrong. And this is fascinating to contemplate. If God exists and he doesn't, well, that would explain a lot, wouldn't it? I like this theory. I'm ready to practice it. Where's my church? Where's my doctrine? But wait, certainty never lasts long, thanks to my second principle. God exists and he doesn't exist can't be right. So here we go. God neither exists nor doesn't exist. Nihilistic, but there we go. Some might say we're saying the same thing. Others might say that this is a bleaker way of looking at it. All I say is, it's the truth, because I am always wrong. So it's the truth for now. Back to Augustine. He would appreciate my dilemma. He works like this too. 
He understands all the dilemmas and works through them in his head. Chastity is great. Well, who says it's great? Isn't it human not to be chaste? And didn't God make humans? Augustine interrogates this. He makes the case for morals, but he also makes the case for lack of morals. Part of the appeal here is the old preacher's trick of a repentant sinner being the most persuasive speaker. Who can get through to an addict? Someone who's never tried drugs? Or someone who has hit rock bottom? The repentant sinner is very popular. Augustine adds another layer. The sinner who longs for morality. The sinner who feels it all along the way. The hope. The need for more. The desire to stop sinning. It makes the story of Augustine's life extremely dramatic. Truths are being pursued, truths are being won, and the battle is hard and compelling and something we can all appreciate because we live it too. It's a great piece of storytelling, a great form of narration. Even as Augustine describes his early passages, his early years in life, his longing, his constant longing for something higher, more important, something to put him out of the vicious cycle that he's in. All that longing builds tension. It makes us want what he wants. In Augustine, there's more to it than just narration. He's a great wrestler with conflicting beliefs, as good a wrestler and intellectual wrangler as anyone you will ever find. It's what gives him intellectual credibility. Because he is so willing to set forth the problem, to test all the answers, and give you his view of their strengths and weaknesses, he becomes more persuasive when he settles on one as being the most logical. With one caveat, I find Augustine extremely persuasive on nearly everything. But as we'll see, the caveat is a pretty big one. jump into the book. The very first paragraph of book one describes why we humans long to praise God. You can see all of Augustine's wrestling, his intellectual wrestling, right there in the first paragraph. He doesn't take it for granted that we would want to write a book to God. He gives us reasons for it. Great are you, O Lord, and exceedingly worthy of praise. Your power is immense and your wisdom beyond reckoning. And so we humans, who are a due part of your creation, long to praise you. We who carry our mortality about with us, carry the evidence of our sin, and with it the proof that you thwart the proud. Yet these humans, due part of your creation as they are, still do long to praise you. You stir us so that praising you may bring us joy, because you have made us and drawn us to yourself, and our heart is unquiet until it rests in you. That paragraph, by the way, has six biblical allusions. Did you catch the Psalms? Did you catch the the letters of Paul in there? 
Think about how this book could have started. It could have just said, Dear God, then gone to paragraph two. Or, It is good to praise God. Or, It is good to praise you, God. You are pleased when we praise you. All that would have been enough to kick off the book. If it were a different sort of book. Augustine doesn't take even dear God for granted. What if someone else, a Manichaean, let's say, came across this book that started out saying dear God and thought, well, what's this? Why would you need to praise a perfect being? Shouldn't the perfection be self-evident and obvious? Or are you saying that your God is imperfect? So Augustine has to set the table for us. God is great. His power is immense. His wisdom is beyond reckoning. We humans long to praise you nevertheless. But Augustine doesn't stop there either. Why? Why is that? Why do we long to praise you? And he raises the stakes. It's not easy being human. It's horribly hard. We carry our mortality about with us. We carry the evidence of our sin. We carry the proof that you thwart the proud. Think about that. God did this to us. God set this in motion. He gave us A, we're all going to die. B, we're all sinners. Thanks so much. And C, God thwarts the proud. You can just hear Augustine answering his critics here. Except I don't think of these as critics so much as Augustine himself, the agonizing seeker, recalling his old objections, the objections he once made to God. God created us. We're all going to die. We're all sinners. God thwarts the proud. What kind of God is this Christian God? He's perfect, and he made us so imperfect? Augustine gives us our reasons. Right there in the first paragraph. Praising you may bring us joy. Okay, but why? Right, that's very Augustine. He doesn't stop there. Praising you may bring us joy. But why? Because you have made us. That's good. We're thankful for that. God may have made us mortal. He may have made us sinners, but without him, we're nothing. Okay. And then Augustine says, because you have drawn us to yourself. Okay. I think I get that. God loves us. We're created in his image. We're special. We're favored. And finally, our heart is unquiet until it rests in you. This is so important to Augustine. This is probably as close to a a synopsis of Augustine as give me chastity, but please not yet. Our heart is unquiet until it rests in you. Here's another passage from later in the book. Matters are so arranged at your command that every disordered soul is its own punishment. Let's unpack that a little more. It starts, matters are so arranged at your command. This is God's design. This is the plan. He commanded matters to be arranged this way. It's crucial for Augustine. The world isn't random. It's not an accident. It's God's plan. God, the omniscient being, God who is good. God wanted it this way. But every disordered soul is its own punishment. What an extraordinary leap. What a fantastic jump this is. Because what's the alternative? This is Augustine, the great lustful man 
loving women, loving women, loving women, unable to find chastity. Even in the midst of seeking it, he begs God, not yet. He's so honest. And yet, he needs something else. Why? Because his mother has taught him that sin, that licentiousness, sex outside marriage is a sin? Because it's immoral? Or because God has commanded it and we must all bow down to God's wishes? No. Augustine can argue his way out of those puzzles. He knows that if he's forced, if he's forced just by an outside authority, it will not make sense necessarily. But here's what Augustine cannot deny when he searches his own mind. Here's the thing that sticks. Here's the thing he, the obstacle that he can't get over. He's unhappy about it. He's unfulfilled. Every disordered soul, the disordered soul like the one he felt, even as he was enjoying his lack of chastity, every disordered soul is its own punishment. Wow. All that in a handful of words. Listen to them again. Matters are so arranged at your command that every disordered soul is its own punishment. And this is the other crucial point to Augustine, which I'll come to in a bit. Free will. But let's stick to book one, which is infancy and boyhood, and go through some of the other incidents. Getting more into the theology than I intended here, the the passages where he describes his youth and boyhood are worth dwelling upon, looking at a little closer. They're rich with detail and good little anecdotes. Very amusing. It's a great read. I don't mean to focus on the ponderousness of it. It's a good read. It's a fun read. It's a good story of a boy growing up. He runs through the great books he was forced to read in school. This strikes a little close to home, of course. A look at literature starting to feel like Augustine might be a rival. He gives his reactions to all the great books. It's sounding very familiar. He reads a lot of the works we've already looked at, Homer and the Aeneid. He wept over Dido, who killed herself for her love of Aeneas. Then he agonizes over why he was weeping over Dido when his own soul was so troubled. He doesn't like the Greeks very much, and he absolutely hates tragedy. Oh, remember those episodes we did on tragedy, where we looked at, at Greek tragedy, the form and what it meant, and we used Nietzsche to take a, a second look at tragedy? Think about what Nietzsche would say here. This is Augustine on tragedy. I'm going to read a fairly long passage here. It's from book three of the Confessions. By now... In the narrative, Augustine is a student at Carthage. As I'm reading, I want you to think about Nietzsche and what he had to say about tragedy. If you missed that episode, here's a quick summary. Nietzsche believed in humans having great souls, human beings stretching themselves and their emotions and their sensibility and their humanness as far as they could. Nietzsche wanted this. 
That's the world he wanted. He wanted to live in a world where humans stretched themselves as far as they could, were as big as they could be. He saw in tragedy, the Greek form of tragedy, this very kind of soul-stretching through art. Why would thousands of Greeks gather for a three- or four- or five-day marathon of plays? And why would those plays be tragic? We know, our society proves, that something about humans love a Hollywood ending, a happy ending. Nietzsche asked, Why did the Greek society look at tragedy as the highest form of art, the pinnacle? And this wasn't just a few pointy-headed academics or critics who preferred tragedy. This wasn't Aristotle looking around and saying he thought tragedy was the highest form of art. This was the whole society, the masses. They were voting with their feet. They would go to these festivals, drink like crazy to celebrate Dionysus, and then off to the tragedies where you see horrible events, you weep, you lament, you mourn. Why? Because you feel. You feel what it's like to be human. That's what it is. You look truth straight in the face, and you're bigger, you're better for doing so. And then what happened? What happened between Greek tragedy and Nietzsche's world? Why did this go away? Why did we lose that desire or that ability to take in tragedy? Nietzsche said, it's one big thing that happened in the Western world. Christianity. That's what sets limits on us. That's what put the kibosh on this soul-stretching. After Christianity takes root, humans aren't in the business of expanding themselves anymore. They get out of the business of staring into the abyss, of looking at truth and grappling with it. They no longer test the expansion of their power and their mind and their intellectual limits. So now, listen to Augustine talking about going to see tragedy. This is in the excellent translation by Maria Bolding. Listen to Augustine Describe what he thinks of tragedy. This is Augustine in the 4th century, barely removed from the Greek world by comparison with our current day or with Nietzsche's current day. But keep Nietzsche's 19th century objections, his cries or his laments, I don't know what to call them, his fulminations, Keep, keep Nietzsche's fulminations in the back of your mind as you listen to this passage by Augustine. And then we'll come back to all of that and discuss. I was held spellbound by theatrical shows full of images that mirrored my own wretched plight and further fueled the fire within me. Why is it that one likes being moved to grief at the sight of sad or tragic events on stage when one would be unwilling to suffer the same things oneself? In the capacity of spectator, one welcomes sad feelings. In fact, the sadness itself is the pleasure. What incredible stupidity! 
The more a person is buffeted by such passions in his own life, the more he is moved by watching similar scenes on stage. Although his state of mind is usually called misery when he is undergoing them himself, and mercy when he shows compassion for others so afflicted. But how real is the mercy evoked by fictional dramas? The listener is not moved to offer help, but merely invited to feel sorrow. And the more intensely he feels it, the more highly he rates the actor in the play. If these tragic human stories, whether referring to events long past or fictional, are played in such a way that they fail to move the spectator to sadness, he walks out in disgust, criticizing the performance. But if he feels sad, he stays on, keenly attentive, and enjoys a good cry. So it is possible to enjoy sad feelings, yet there can be no doubt that everyone aspires to be happy. Can this be the reason that no one wants to be miserable, but we do like to think ourselves merciful, and mercy must entail some sorrow? Can it be for this reason alone that sorrowful feelings are welcomed? To be sure, this power of sympathy derives from the stream of friendship. But where does it flow to? Whither is it bound? Why does it debouch into a torrent of boiling pitch, into seething passions of monstrous lust, so that it loses itself in them, is diverted and thrown off course, and deviates by its own choice from its heavenly serenity? Is mercy then to be rejected? By no means, it is sometimes right to entertain compassionate feelings. But beware of impurity, my soul, under the guardianship of my God, the God of our fathers who is to be praised and most highly exalted forever. Beware of impurity. Even today I am not devoid of merciful sensibility, but at that time it was different. I rejoiced with lovers on the stage who took sinful pleasure in one another, even though their adventures were only imaginary and part of a dramatic presentation. And when they lost each other, I grieved with them, ostensibly merciful, yet in both instances I found pleasure in my emotions. Today I feel greater pity for someone who takes delight in a sinful deed than for someone else who seems to suffer grievously at the loss of pernicious pleasure and the passing of a bliss that was in fact nothing but misery. This is unquestionably a truer mercy, but the sadness it entails holds no attraction for me. A person who sorrows for someone who is miserable earns approval for the charity he shows. But if he is genuinely merciful, he would far rather there were nothing to sorrow about. If such a thing as spiteful benevolence existed, which is impossible, of course, but supposing it did, a genuinely and sincerely merciful person would wish others to be miserable so that he could show them mercy. We must conclude that, while some sorrow is commendable, no sorrow is to be valued for its own sake. You, Lord God, lover of souls, show mercy far more purely than we can, and in a way free from all taint, because no sorrow can wound you. Which of us is sufficient for this? At that time I was truly miserable, for I loved feeling sad, and sought out whatever could cause me sadness. When the theme of a play dealt with other people's tragedies, 
false and theatrical tragedies, it would please and attract me more powerfully the more it moved me to tears. I was an unhappy beast astray from your flock and resentful of your shepherding. So what wonder was it that I became infected with foul mange? My love for tragic scenes sprang from no inclination to be more deeply wounded by them, for I had no desire to undergo myself the woes I liked to watch. It was simply that when I listened to such doleful tales being told, they enabled me, superficially, to scrape away at my itching self, with the result that these raking nails raised an inflamed swelling and drew stinking discharge from a festering wound. Was that life I led any life at all, oh my God? Did you hear that? Did you hear that? It's amazing. So much in there. So much richness. The part I love is where he is thinking through what it means that he's delighting in sorrow and thinking, someone who delights in sorrow, does it mean that they are wishing for sorrow? Can that be a good thing? And then he compares that with God. He says, you, Lord God, lover of souls, show mercy more purely than we can, and in a way, free from all taint because no sorrow can wound you. So God's perfection is is the protection that God needs from doing something monstrous, which is, did he create our sorrow? Remember all the sorrow that we saw in the other passage? The fact that we're mortal and we carry our mortality with us? The fact that we're sinners? The fact that pride is thwarted? Did God create all that? to be his spectacle so he can feel so he can be like the spectators at a tragedy delighting in the sorrow of others is that the role God is playing here Augustine can't accept it he can't bear to think that that's what God is doing so he he reasons his way out of it he says Your mercy is more pure than ours because sorrow can't wound you. You can't feel sad. You're too great to feel sadness. Therefore, when you show mercy, it's not because it makes you feel good the way it feels good for us to go to tragic events. Very deep, very rich. It's Augustine. It's like this on every page. And listen to the end. Was that life I led any life at all? Oh my God, and Nietzsche, 1,500 years later, you can hear him saying, yes, yes it was, it was a life you were living. It was a beautiful life, Augustine. It could have been, it should have been. You should have embraced your humanness, your unchastity, your pride, your lust, your quote-unquote immorality. You should have gone to see those tragedies and felt them and not blocked those feelings. You should have embraced them. Tragedy was right there before you. You felt it. You had a reaction that was genuine. And then 
You shrank from it. You shrank from it and turned away. Not because it was the right path or the only path, but because you were scared. You were scared of your own disordered soul. You came to believe the disquiet and unrest and thinking was something that needed to be remedied. And this, God, was your response. Even as you find flaws with God, as you find logical holes in God's arguments, as you find God's weaknesses, as you find God's conundrums, the paradoxes, the hints that God may not be great, that God may not be good, even as you find those flaws, you patch them up. You plug the holes. And why? Why are you doing this? Not because God is strong, but because you, Augustine, are weak. That's fascinating. Oh, how great would it be to announce that next week I'll be joined by Augustine and Nietzsche. I think my podcasting brain would explode. But I'm afraid I'm going to have to end things there, even though we still have a lot of Augustine to cover. This book is too good to do in one episode, so we're going to break it into a couple of parts. We still have his lovers, his friends, his conversion, his famous visit to the pear tree. We have his arguments, his reasonings, his well-considered justifications. We are not going to let Nietzsche have the last word here. Augustine will have something to say. Augustine, as always, as ever, will have something to say. Okay, that's it for this episode of the History of Literature. I hope you enjoyed it. I'm Jack Wilson, your host. We're getting close to the 50-episode mark, and I think that means that some of the episodes are going to start disappearing from iTunes. Not to worry. You can download them all from historyofliterature.com. But if you're an iTunes person and you plan to run through the back catalog at some point to catch up, maybe do a little Gilgameshing or a little Ramayaning, or a little Bhagavad Gitaing, whatever these verbs are, now might be a good time to stock up. I'm also posting these works through Facebook. There's a History of Literature Facebook page. You can go and sign up for that, because we are a 21st century joint. Take that, Augustine, you rival podcaster. You can also find us at jackwilson.com, J-A-C-K-E, wilson.com, and historyofliterature.com. Hey, you. Hey, you with the face. Does anyone remember that carnival taunt? Maybe it's still being used on a pinball machine somewhere. Hey, you with the face. Well, I'm going to be more polite than that because I'm going to ask a favor. Hey, you, beloved listener, dear friend, who also has a face. If you have a few seconds to spare, please do us a favor and rate us on iTunes. We could use a few stars. Five would be nice. Five from each listener. Or leave a comment telling us how we're doing. 
You can also email me at jackwilsonauthor at gmail.com. That's J-A-C-K-E, wilsonauthor at gmail.com. Who else should we cover? What authors would you like to hear us go into? I'm taking requests. Thanks again for listening. I'm Jack Wilson, and we'll see you next time. Thank you.